The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. we sing of your grace leading us home. We sing of that, we ask for it, and in fact ask for it now to lead us to you here in this room. So we of course need and we ask for you to graciously carry us all the way, all the way through life and all the way into our eternal rest with you. But that is not to say that we don't need you right now. We, we say that, we affirm that, we cry out for your grace to lead us in this moment into the truth. And to lead us in a way that is encouraging and convicting. Both. Perhaps there are ways we need to be corrected and change. And perhaps that correction and that change would in fact lift us up and encourage us and and cause hope to rise in us, and life to run through us. Conviction is not a bad thing. Maybe you would convict to bring comfort and encouragement and life. But maybe it's not conviction that's needed, maybe it's it's remembrance. We're talking about things that for many of us are extremely familiar, and I pray, Lord, that you would cause those things to to kind of bubble to the surface again and, and be real to us move past theory into life-gripping reality. Help us to remember. And overall, that would you produce, would you continue a spirit of celebration this morning? Make your word alive. And in this word, would you show us Christ alive? And would you then create life in us anew? So have your way with us this morning, please. Would you commission your spirit, Father, to run through the room here and clear away all distraction, physical, spiritual, that we can hear you and rejoice in you. So make your word clear, honor this son, and build your church. So we ask you to do good to us this morning, Lord. We ask that all the time, but we ask it particularly this morning. Would you do good to us by causing us to see and to revel in Jesus anew? Thank you, Father. And it is in his name that we pray for his honor, for his glory, and for the good of his people. Thank you. Amen. On this Easter Sunday, we leave our ongoing study of the book of Luke to give special attention to the event we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus. An extremely familiar event for most of us, but a totally unexpected and shocking occurrence for those who originally encountered it. And it's important that we keep that in mind as we are here this morning thinking about this. They weren't thinking about it. Jesus had been dead, after all, just a short while before, dead. And everybody who's lived at all knows what that means. Dead people are dead. 
and Jesus was dead. And while we glory in what happened there on the cross, we, we today, we, we who are believers today, we glory and we revel in what happened at the cross. How Christ in his dying atones for sin. For those who trust him, we find life. We revel in that, but we do so from a vantage point that the original disciples did not enjoy. From where they stood, actually most of them didn't stand there, most had run away in fear, but from where John and a few women stood at the foot of the cross, this was not a victory, it was a crushing defeat. They would never have called Good Friday good. Jesus had been executed and buried, game over. Nothing left to celebrate anymore. The hope of forgiveness, the hope of the coming of God's kingdom, the hope of life, it's all gone, dead, and buried. To paraphrase two of those disciples, we had thought he was the one God sent to deliver us. But we were wrong. That, that cannot be. He's dead. And that's where they are as we pick up the story. Reading in John chapter 19, verse 41, through chapter 20, verse 18. You can read about 20 verses or so from the Gospel of John, including the burial and the first discovery of the resurrection. But where they are at that moment is they are hopeless and they are confused in life, like many people today. They've, they've grasped hold of something, they've banked their hope on it, and then it ran through their fingers and they realized, so they think, they realized, I was totally wrong. That was empty. There is nothing. That's where they are. And what they encounter returns, restores, resurrects hope. It is, in fact, possible to be forgiven. It is, in fact, possible to find life. It is possible to know the joy and the rest of the kingdom of God because of and only because of. Because of and only because of what we celebrate today. Let me read the passage, and then I walk back through it to address some of the details because there are a number of details that are important for us to, to be clear on. And then I'll make two observations from it. This is John chapter 19, beginning in verse 41 through chapter 20, verse 18. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go, go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. 
Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where they have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary, we see, goes to the tomb early, the first day of the week while it's still dark. Elsewhere we're told that she's with a few others, but she's the focus. She gets to the grave and she's startled by what she finds. She's gone there to complete the anointing work that they'd begun when he was first buried, but that had been cut short by the setting of the sun, the onset of the Sabbath. So she goes there to finish the, the task of anointing, and they found that the stone had been rolled away from the door. There's, there would be a stone in front of the door to seal it. It's rolled away, and kind of like when you come home and find your door ajar, your house open, you realize something's wrong, and the first thing that leaps to her mind is theft. Somebody's probably broken in to steal the body and to steal the, the goods there. That's what she tells Peter and John when she runs to get them. And so that's what they're thinking when they run towards the tomb. Grave robbery was common enough that people would assume that. Sometimes some would break into tombs to steal the valuables that families would put in there with bodies and even to steal the cloths in which the body was wrapped. That might seem rather odd to us, but... We have to remember that clothing was valuable back in that day. The, the soldiers gambled to see who could win Jesus' clothing, you'll recall, when he was on the cross. Clothing was valuable, especially linen, because it was expensive. So perhaps some grave robbers looking at a, a new rich man's tomb assumed there's a good target, and they, they broke in to, to steal the valuables and, and to steal the, the, the expensive linen. That's what they're thinking. They run there, and John looks in. Now with the sun starting to rise, there's a little more light, and he can see in. And he sees the grave cloths. And then Peter arrives, and they both enter. And again, verse 6, Peter and then John again see the linen cloths, the most valuable item present, still present. And the separate face cloth, wrapped around the head, usually to keep the jaw in place, it's there too, neatly folded, set to the side. Now, see, see the scene here. You, we can tell from later when the two angels are sitting, one at the head, one at the foot, that, that there's a way to identify where the body would be. The, these, these cloths are not just like strewn around the tomb. They're still there, kind of wrapped in the shape of the body with the, the spices in it, where the body was laid on the bench there. And the head cloth is folded up neatly, set off to the side, but there's no body inside of it. The 
cloths are there, kind of collapsed down, empty. Hmm. You come home and you suspect grave robbery. You come home and you suspect thieves, but there's two $20 bills still on your table and your laptop is still on the desk. You know, there are no thieves broke in here. What, what happened? Something else, something else occurred. There's no body. And John, the same John who with those same eyes saw Jesus crucified, jabbed with a spear, wrapped up and buried, saw those facts. And it says here, saw these facts. End of verse 8. He saw and believed. Not because of the scriptures. It's important. Two men are giving testimony here, not about beliefs or impressions or ideas or inner persuasions or stuff they have a real strong gut feeling about. Any internal impression, even a strong internal impression, can be wrong, especially if you've been conditioned to look for it. But this is a fact. I walked into the tomb, and this is what I saw. That's testimony, admissible in court, two witnesses. And it's especially powerful because right in the text, John, the one who was there and the one who wrote this, admits that he did not understand that the Bible taught this. For instance, like in, John, like in Psalm 16, we heard earlier, you will not let my holy one see decay. He did not understand that. He was not inclined to expect. There is no wish fulfillment going on here with somebody wishing for something and then interpreting events to match this. It stunned him. So much so that they walk out believing but totally confused and they just go home. They don't know what to make of it. And then the focus shifts to Mary, verse 11. She stands at the tomb weeping. And her emotional state is an issue here. Verse 11 mentions it twice. Angels and Jesus both raise it in their question to her. She's weeping, just heavy, hopeless sorrow. And that dominates her heart and blinds her so that she can't see what John and Peter saw. She looks in. She sees the cloths there too. They're right there. And even more, she has a conversation with two angels dressed in white. They're not incognito here. They look like angels. In the tomb, empty, sitting next to the, the claws. Right? And she's conversing with them, but she can't see it. Blinded by, by her sorrow, blinded by her confusion, she just gives them her theory about, you know, somebody's taking the body, I suppose. And maybe she hears something and then turns and talks to the gardener, so she supposes. Evidently, Jesus' resurrection body resembles his pre-resurrection body, but isn't quite obvious that it's him. But the text seems to want to make a point that she's in the dark, even while it's light. The sun's rising, she's talking to angels, she's speaking with Jesus, and she's weeping inconsolably because she doesn't know where he is and is still trapped in hopeless sorrow. Until Jesus opens her eyes and shows himself to her, speaks her name, Mary. And then she gets it. 
sort of. She falls to the ground and grasps his feet. We know that's where she was clinging to him from other Gospels. She grasps his feet. Teacher, she exclaims, but not my Lord and my God, like Thomas will say later. She hasn't grasped the implication of the resurrection. She's just relieved that her teacher is there, that he's back. But that's not quite right. He's not back. He's going to make that clear when, he, when we look at what he says to her a little bit later. He wants her to, to go and tell that, he's, that, he has been risen, that he has been raised, and so she does. And that's the text. Notice how it begins and ends with Mary, and in the middle we've got another scene with John and, and Peter. So there are two scenes here with two different purposes. One, the first one we'll look at, to establish a fact. And the second one, to, to give us something about the meaning of that fact. What the fact is about. And together they combine to urge us to, and here's the main theme for this morning, passage wants to urge us to hope in Jesus who has risen and ascended to reign in glory. Hope in Jesus who has risen and ascended to reign in glory. And in saying hope, that gets at something that, that I think runs through much of this morning and certainly runs through a large part of the sermon that we actually have to hope not just know we have to first know that's that's the first purpose but we can't stop there we we, we often in in the world in general and and even in many of our very personal lives even within the church we we take something like this and we we kind of have, have a fact that we know and, and we, we agree to it, we, we embrace it, and we set it there on the shelf, and we don't actually then direct our hope to it and take everything else in life, grab it, and subject it to this fact. We, we know it. We don't hope in it. And so ironically, tragically, we are left somewhat like Mary face-to-face -face with the resurrected Jesus, not seeing the resurrected Jesus. Hopeless. So we have to hope in Jesus, who has risen and ascended to reign in glory. That's where we're going this morning. Two observations from it, and here's the first one. John wants to make a fact... John wants to make a fact clear to us. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. We might need some help back here, I'm not sure. Okay? Or no? Okay. Ralph says carry on. <laughs> Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. John saw it with his own eyes. The same John who was there at the cross, the women who were there, the soldiers, 
Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, everybody saw him killed, saw him pierced with a spear, saw the fluids come out of him, saw him taken down and buried. Jesus was dead, as dead as can be. And he recounts those events for us in chapter 19, and we need to mention them briefly and be completely clear about them so that we see the, the shock of the events of chapter 20. The very same eyes, the very same person, John, saw the empty tomb, saw the grave clothes as we, we, we looked at there, saw and believed, and while he did not understand everything, he knew this much, I didn't take the body. Peter didn't take the body. We're, we're scared witless here. And faking a resurrection is not going to give us any more courage. You realize some people actually say that's what happened, that the disciples stole the body. Not only is that directly contradicted by the passage here, that makes no sense whatsoever. Fearing for their lives, they're going to fake a resurrection so as to encourage themselves. Makes no sense. I didn't steal the body. Peter didn't steal the body. No grave robber took the body. What thief unwraps the body, refolds, rearranges the valuables, leaves them behind, and then runs off carrying a dead, naked body? Some people say that happened. That makes no sense. The Romans and the Jewish leaders didn't take the body. They want him to stay right there. They're not interested whatsoever in, in giving anybody any room to say that he was raised from the dead. They want him to stay right there in the tomb. That's what John sees. That's what John's thinking. And to be sure that we don't dismiss John's conclusion, we have Mary's story. Two angels in an empty tomb and Jesus himself who can be grasped. He is in the flesh. He is bodily. He is bodily present. Jesus was dead and Jesus is alive again, bodily raised just like he said he would be, though no one understood it. Just like he said he would be. This is an objective fact. And it became the central message proclaimed by the apostles as they preached far and wide in years to come. It is the foundation of Christianity. So much so that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ was not raised then the whole of Christianity is utterly false. The chief apostle, the teacher of the Christian faith says, if Jesus was not raised, if this did not happen, this is all false. That's putting all your eggs in a basket. A basket. But, if he was raised, then biblical Christianity is true and every other world religion, all 10,000 of them, are utterly false. Because if biblical Christianity is true, it refutes everything else. It is an either-or situation. Biblical Christianity or something else. Not both. And that either or hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. On the fact of the resurrection, Christianity takes its stand. And this is a unique foundation that we stand on. An historical fact. 
All other religions, their foundations are philosophical or theological based on teachings and theories and approaches, unverified and unverifiable accounts, claimed events. Take Islam, for instance. We could do something similar with everything, but take Islam, for instance. One man claims to receive revelation from God, which itself all follows a miraculous event off in nature all by himself. In this case, he's in a cave. Sometimes single men have claimed to receive revelations in nature all by themselves elsewhere. This one, Islam, he's in a cave. He's the only one there, the only one who receives this revelation. No one else saw it, no one else heard it, no one else is qualified to record it, no one else is qualified to understand it or interpret it. That's all we get. One man and his claims. You make your choice. You believe that God spoke to him or you don't. Maybe you pray about it and ask for some sort of inner feeling, some inner guidance one way or the other, but there's nothing objective in that. That is all subjective belief. It's just a personal, internal belief based on no concrete, verifiable facts, just on a claim. It's opinion. And whether or not you believe that Muhammad received revelation from God, you're just trusting some gut feeling about this man's trustworthiness and his connection to God. And all of us have been wrong about inner feelings, about gut inclinations. Purely subjective faith is questionable at best. But that's not the case with Christianity. It is not purely subjective. There is indeed subjectivity. Because there is indeed theology and philosophy. There is indeed a call to believe it. And you must, in the end, make a decision. Do I or do I not believe? Do I, do I not believe? Do I doubt? There is, for sure, subjectivity. But it is not purely subjective. And in the end, at the bottom, it is based on an objective fact. This dead man is alive. The apostles preached that in Jerusalem where he was killed to the people who killed him. The people who had placed a Roman guard at the tomb to make sure this sort of thing didn't happen. They preach it to those rulers. This dead man that you killed came back to life. That's a truth claim about objective, concrete fact. Because then they say, and hundreds of people have seen him. Not just me. Me and him. And him and him and her and him and them and all of them. Once you reach 500, you stop counting. Hundreds. Not just me. Hundreds of people have seen him alive, have touched him, have eaten with him, have talked with him. We've all seen him and there is no body. Face it, it's true. And you must see this. What's the easiest way to stop that preaching? What is the easiest 
clear-cut, simple way to stop that preaching. Produce a body. Any body. It would have been decayed enough that it would have been really hard to tell back then, given their methods. It would have been really hard to tell, is this Jesus or not? But they don't even bother to try that because they knew that wouldn't work. Hundreds of people had already seen him alive. They don't produce a body. They just tell them to shut up. Stop talking about this. Which is an admission of failure. But they didn't stop talking, and the world must face this fact. Jesus was raised from the dead. And that is not a philosophical claim, not a theological point, not a metaphor, it's not subjective opinion. It's objective fact. It is very concrete, and it demands our attention. And if you're a believer, <laughs> be reminded of this. This is, this is the best news. <laughs> if you're a believer, it is, it is so very common, as I was saying earlier, for us to hear this, for us to celebrate this, and to set it off to the side and forget it. And then it does seem to us, and we hear all of the world around us talk about how it's all just kind of the same. Religion is religion. There's, you know, there's spiritual stuff, and there's a thousand ways you can think about this, and we kind of think, man, I guess it is just my opinion that this is the way to go. No, it's not just your opinion. It is your opinion, but not just your opinion. There is really good news for you. If you're, if you're a Christian... All that you believe and all that you think and all, all the subjective things that you hold on to and embrace are rooted in something hard. I had a, a professor in an evangelism class years ago, and he had been a missionary in Japan, and he told this story about his wife who, on a particular day, was going to go over to a, a Japanese woman, a friend of hers, and go over to her house and... She'd been praying. That day, she was going to talk to her about Jesus. She decided that this was, this was the time she was going to do that. She's going to talk to her about Jesus. And later that night, when they, when they saw each other again, the, the husband asked her, how did it go? And she said, strangest thing, strangest thing. I, I go to this woman's apartment, we talk, and, and I say, I'd like to talk to you about something. And she said, ah, you know, I'd like to talk to you about something too. And before the Christian woman can tell her about Jesus, the Japanese woman shares her faith with her. Not to go into all the details about that, but what it was based on, says the Christian woman, it was just like what I was going to say. Weird. How joyful and happy she is because she's found this faith. How it's given her a sense of purpose and direction and meaning in life. This is exactly what I was going to say. Huh. And as I thought that through, the point of it was, as the professor then said to our class, we do not believe Christianity. We do not talk about Christianity because it is happy. It gives me purpose. It gives me direction. And I find it good. We believe and talk about Christianity because it is true. Because it is true. Well, how can you know? True. You find happiness there, I find happiness here. You're, maybe yours is true, maybe mine is No, no. 
we look at a tomb that was in fact empty. Truth. From that then, we make some philosophical and theological claims. In that then, we find verification for other philosophical and theological claims. Indeed, there is subjectivity here. But in the end, Christianity takes a stand on an objective fact and says, this is the truth. That needs to be kept in your mind, believer, Christian. That needs to be kept in your mind when, when it feels like all of the world is falling apart, and my life included, and I don't know what, what I stand on, and I feel like I'm blown in the wind, and in fact, probably sinking in quicksand. What, 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 what? That at the bottom, there is a rock that is truth. Hope in that. We'll come back to this later. But if you're, if you're not a Christian, this, let me encourage you, ask you to carefully consider this. I am not talking about, we do not sing about, pray about, our theory of morality or our theory of ethics or our, our pie-in-the-sky hope. What we are talking about and putting in front of all of the world, and maybe that includes you this morning, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, is a claim about truth. Face that and don't turn away from it. What we who are, are human... So this is all of us. What we who are human often do when we are faced with a challenge that has some consequences that we're not sure we like, what we often do is we change the subject. You talk to me about my anger, and I say, ah, ah. well, Bob's angry too. And you, frankly, you, you you're not perfect. In fact, you don't get angry enough about enough things. You're so mealy-mouthed. That's what we do. We change the subject. We shift the blame. We try to include everybody in the same boat with us. And all of that may be true and completely irrelevant to the question, do I or do I not have an anger problem? doesn't matter if he does. Do I? We, we change the subject because we... We don't like to face things that, that seem to call for some sort of change in us, that seem to, to kind of put the onus on us to own something and face it and change directions. We change the subject instead. The resurrection means that whatever you believe, whatever you hope in, if it is not biblical Christianity, is false. Wrong. No, we don't like that. So, often, 
what comes up next is, you know how many hypocritical Christians there are? Tons. And that's not relevant. It isn't. It says that there are plenty of Christians that don't know and don't trust and don't believe, don't live in their faith. Do you know how many good people there are in other religions? Tons. And good people who are not in any religion at all. Tons. Do you know how many common ethical teachings, how many common moral teachings there are across all those religions of the world? Yeah, tons. But that's not relevant. All that says is that God, in fact, gives goodness, that God cares about the world, that God is a God who loves everybody and has done some good everywhere in many, many people, given some truth to many, many people because he cares about people. That does not affirm that everybody's right about everything. It's not relevant. So I ask you, please see that and don't change the subject. Is the tomb empty or not? 500 eyewitnesses say yes. And if the tomb was empty, Biblical Christianity is true and everything else is false, which means that it cannot deliver to you life. So there's something hard to face there. It might involve change. It might involve you saying, I've been wrong, humbling yourself. My family's been wrong. My culture's been wrong. Yeah, it might involve a lot of humbling there. But on the other side of that is a tremendous promise because what you're following can't produce life, can't deliver to you good this is true, it can. And how so gets us at the second point. This is the second observation. So Jesus has been raised from the dead, first observation. But why? It's not just a miracle designed to wow us or show us God's power. There's, there's meaning in it. And the second purpose of the passage gets, gets at that meaning. God has raised Jesus from the dead, first point, in order to raise him up to reign from heaven. In order to raise him up to reign from heaven. In order to exalt him, to elevate him, to lift him up above all the creation, to hold him up for all to see and to worship, and to place him in the position of authority over all the creation. An authority that brings life. God has lifted him up, exalted him as Savior and Judge over all the earth. That's the ultimate meaning behind what Jesus says in verse 17. It begins with a puzzling statement. Mary, don't cling to me. Which doesn't mean... Don't touch me. Jesus is all right being touched. In fact, shortly, he's going to actually encourage Thomas to touch him. So to prove, I'm, I'm here in, in the body. Touch me. He's, he's fine being touched. He means don't cling to me. He's trying to get at something else here. Don't clamp hold of me as the same old teacher that you used to think of me as. For, he continues, I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
the raising up from out of the grave, but it's not yet completed, you might say we're, we're halfway there. I'm halfway there. I've been raised from the dead, but I'm being raised up, exalted higher than that. I am not returning to my earthly life. I'm passing through en route to the throne. That's the message I want you to go tell people. I want you to go proclaim that. Not tell them I'm risen, that I'm back. But tell them I am being raised up. I'm being lifted up, taken up. Being throned in heavenly glory to ascend. The rejected one is being exalted. They must know this. That's what he tells Mary to tell them. And, and we must know this. We must see it. Because if we wind back just a little bit and we see Jesus, as they last saw him, hanging on the cross, or see Jesus dead, wrapped up, buried, we see him like that. He appears clearly to be a failed deliverer. A false messiah, a liar, in fact. Cursed by God. That's what's going on on the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross under God's curse. And we look at him there, we see him cursed by God, rejected by God, because of all the blasphemy that from the previous pages. This is, this is a man who walked around and claimed to be God. He repeatedly took on himself the name of God, the I Am. He identified as that. He healed on the Sabbath, freely rearranging the laws of God. He claimed to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises about God's anointed deliverer, about God's king, about the way into union with God. He claimed to be the Lamb of God who in his death would set people free from sin. He claimed to be the only way, the only door into the kingdom of God. He claimed to have the right to judge people's entrance in and to deny their access to the kingdom of God. He commanded people to give allegiance to him and repent and turn to him. Which is way beyond the pale if he's just a man like people claimed. Surely God is highly motivated to judge such blasphemy. And so he hangs him up on the cross and everybody says, called the bluff, there he is, condemned. That's the last they saw. But, cursed by God, he is now raised up and exalted to the right hand of the Father, which is a complete reversal of all of that verdict. And so the preaching of the other church was, let all the house of Israel know for certain, let all the nations of the earth know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Master, Lord, and Christ, delivering ruler. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's what the resurrection does with Jesus. It takes him from the position of being cursed, and he was in fact cursed. Makes you wonder why. But it takes him from the position of being cursed and puts him in the position of being exalted and reigning. It stamps him as approved and elevates him to the, to the place of rule. 
and says what was going on in the curse is not my condemning of him permanently, but my condemning of him what in place of you. And I bring him out of the grave to show that my condemnation has been satisfied and now reversed as I lift him up approved to reign. The bluff was finally called. It wasn't a bluff. He was all that he said he was. He has removed sin in his death. He is the only way into heaven, and God has raised him from the grave to the right hand of authority and power. He began the age of the resurrection in Christ, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That is, he might reign over all. This crucified king has been raised up and sits on the throne reigning and on him all of our allegiance, all of our obedience, all of our affection and attention must be fixed. He is the Lord and Christ exalted on high. That's what the resurrection says. And tragically, the world does not know this. Do you know this? Do you know this? Heard it, probably, but do you know this? And I'm saying that to people in general, Christians included. Do you know this? Tragically, the world does not know it and still does not know who Christ is, does not know where Christ is, does not know what he is, and still disregards him, sometimes denying and mocking and sometimes just politely avoiding, disregarding him. The world does not know this Christ, does not embrace this risen, reigning, ruling Christ. And because of it is a mess, as was prayed earlier, is locked in wreckage. The wreckage of the world and the wreckage of your life is because you do not know this Christ. Unable to live life in fullness because what you're following and trusting in cannot deliver life to you. But the wonder of it is, we might think, we, we might be inclined to think that someone so rejected who comes out the other side of that able to say, ha, told you so, might then seek to rub it in. But wonder wonders, he, he reigns in this time period not to destroy he reigns in this time period to offer mercy. It is a wonderful thing. To face this, the, the hard, to face the resurrection and its fact, the heart of it is to admit, to, to be humble enough to say, Lord, I have been wrong. Show me what this means. And the good of it is that out the other side of that comes, what, what this means is that this Christ has been raised up and reigns and is able to take care of your sin and is able to, to offer to you life. That's the good news. 
So trust him. Does it involve giving up everything you've banked on? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does. That's hard. But we very often, if we see something really good, we'll give up something less good to get it. Maybe some, some, some things that you've lived with and held on to and grasped hold of are very comfortable for you and seem very good. And to give them up sounds hard. To find life, though, sounds good, doesn't it? To find the removal of guilt, to find forgiveness of sin, to find life delivered into your heart. Access to fellowship with the God for whom you were made. Does that sound good to you? It's offered to you by the reigning king, and he can deliver it. He's the king. What a blessing it is to be forgiven, and a blessing to be one of his people, an object of mercy. One that he, by sovereign grace, made brothers and sisters of his even, which is amazing. Did you catch that in verse 17? This is a remarkable thing. All the details aren't in this verse, in verse 17. But there's something remarkable hinted at. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, go to my brothers. The brothers, the disciples, all were like cockroaches when the light goes on. And one might think that now that Jesus has come out the other side of that, he would say, well, a, a friend in need is a friend indeed, I guess, and you split. So I guess we're through. But that's not how he regarded them. Go and tell my brothers. Say to them that I am ascended to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. There's a distance there. It's not our, it's mine and yours. There's a bit of distance in that. But the remarkable thing is that they're, they're in. They're still in relationship to Jesus and still in relationship to God the Father. Those who belong to Christ, who are his own, they are his brothers, sisters, if you will, brought close, joined in relationship by what Jesus just did. And that is despite their sin. It is because of his mercy and grace. This risen and exalted one, Christian, hear this, this risen and exalted one calls you his brother or sister and he is for you who in the world what in the world can be against you we have to hope in this not just know it this one who was crucified raised and raised sits on the throne in utter authority over everything 
everywhere and calls you brother, sister. What reason could there ever be for you to be dominated by hopeless sorrow? Do you see where he is? I focus on sorrow there because it seems to be Mary's issue. It is Mary's issue. Why are you weeping so? That's why she's crying. But he said, why are you weeping? The tomb is empty. Do you not see it? The tomb's empty. You're talking to two angels in an empty tomb. You're talking to me. Where am I? Here. But only for a little while because I'm going to be there for you. I am rising up I, for us. I have risen up to the right hand of the throne. I am the Lord in Christ, and you are my daughter, my sister even. And he controls every moment of every situation, every circumstance in all of life, working it for the good of those who love him, you. Nothing comes to you, not a thing comes to you that has not passed through the hands of the risen and exalted and reigning Christ. Your king, your brother. So you can look at whatever's going on, you can look at all of that very clearly and, and know I'm in the hands of the ruler who loves me. Why weep? Now, tears are not a bad thing. Humans with a God-given capacity for a full range of emotions. So, tears, yes. But sorrows and tears are only half the story. Heartache is only half the story. Fear is only half the story. And it is possible, it is possible and in fact common that we spend much time, too much time, focusing on that half the story, on the sorrow or on the loss, on the intimidating thing, on the fearful thing. And I do not want to say those things are not fearful. But what I want to ask and, and maybe plead with you in looking at the sorrowful thing, are you seeing Christ in the midst of the sorrowful thing? And are you seeing that the Christ who's in the midst of it is this Christ? He's not even the good teacher. He's the reigning king. There is a life to be lived now in this world that really is so heavenly and so otherworldly that it tempers and can even control, overwhelm sorrow. Not eliminate it, control it. Stand above it. A, a life that stands above our sorrows, not beneath them. We have a king who lives and a kingdom that is coming. And a life that, a life there that now in this life, if we think through the rest of the New Testament, we are, we are stocking up, as we face these light and momentary troubles now, we are stocking up the life there with treasures. We face what's here in faith. It's all certain because he lives and he reigns in glory for us and has delivered us to that life. That's 
your horizon. And very often, the thing that you should perhaps ask is very often, when I'm trapped in sorrow and I ask myself, why so downcast, O my soul? The answer is, I have not put my hope in God, in that reigning Christ. The psalmist then counsels himself, why so downcast? Put your hope in God. I shall yet again praise him, my God, and my salvation. This risen king is your savior. That's your horizon. Trapped in sorrow here now, what you're failing to do is hope in him. So Christian, I invite you for your good, hope in Christ. The risen and the reigning king. Let me pray. I'm thankful, Father, that you give us, that you give me something to stand on that is true. Something to, to grab a hold of and hold that is true. We think out from that, we reason out from that, but it's true. Thank you for showing it to us and thank you for what it accomplished, the lifting up of Christ, the enthroning of Christ over everything for us. Would you draw our attention to him? All of us, Christians and those who are not yet Christians, would you draw our attention to him and cause in us a hope a surrendered rest to rise up, faith to rise up in us. Cause that to happen, please. And build up your church to his honor. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead and raising him up to reign on high. Cause us to hope in him, please. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.